Take your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We've been in 1 John for a few months now, although we've had several breaks and uh, Wednesdays when I was out of, out of state. But uh, we are slowly working ourselves through 1 John. This morning I was at the chamber meeting, and uh, each Wednesday we have that. Um, our newly elected uh, senator for our area, state senator, uh, had the uh, was the host, and he uh, he's got a beautiful voice. He sang some Christmas songs and and enjoyed that. It was a lot of fun. A good crowd of people there. Uh, one of those unusual times. Usually, I get to pray with someone. You know, someone will mention a need, and we'll have prayer for them. But I probably prayed with eight people uh, this morning. It was like there was a, almost a line waiting. And uh, then a gentleman that uh, we know of, this friend, uh, Sheldon Penner, is uh, having kidney failure. It looks like he'll have to have a kidney transplant and go on dialysis next week. And we had um, a good number of Christians just gather around and lay their hands on him while I prayed and asked God to do something special. It's amazing the influence that our church has in a secular forum like that. Um, they know our church to be uh, one that cares for the community and cares for the souls of people. But they especially know, uh, Brother Vessel and myself, is people who care for them and pray for them and have an opportunity to come to us and, and ask for prayer. And uh, it was just an amazing thing to see uh, how God melts hearts over the, over the years. And what a blessing that's been. A great ministry, and I thank God for that. We're in 1 John chapter 4. We're starting at verse 7. Last week, we finished up verses 2 through 6. You remember, three weeks ago, we tried to do verses 1 through 6, and we got through verse 1. And then we finished up verses 2 through 6 last Wednesday. Well, this Wednesday, I hope to finish verse 7 through verse 21. Uh, which is the most ambitious we've ever done. Uh, it's uh, 7.15. Uh, we'll be done this uh, today. Uh, we'll be done sometime today. No, I, I honestly want to get through this scripture so all of us can understand what it's trying to say and also get you out before things uh, continue to get harder, uh, harder freeze. It's, it's very cold. Even things are frozen on the cars right now. So we're in 1 John, we're picking up at verse 7, and so what I want to do is read verse 7, and then we'll stop right there, and then we'll look at the other verses as we work ourselves through the passage. So in verse 7 it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. And let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd speak to our hearts by your Spirit. Use the Word of God not only as the text, dear Father, uh, but as the power. We know the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so take your Word and drive it home to our heart and help us see exactly what the Holy Spirit of God was using John the Apostle to say not only to the believers of his day, but to all of us through all time, because we too are your children. 
And the word of God is directed for us and for our profit, for our benefit. And so help us listen to the authoritative word of God and apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I read verse 7 because verse 7 is sort of the text that outlines what verses 7 through 21 is going to be speaking about. Almost all of it is speaking about the subject of love. There's like three verses in the midst of there is going to be talking about the proof and the spirit of God and uh, the truth and the spirit of God. And we'll see that when we get to it. But it's simply entitled God is love. And that's this passage. But the fact that God is love and then how we as his children, being children of God and having the spirit of God indwell us, how does the fact that God is love affect us? The fact that God is love, how does that affect us? And I want all of us to ask the question, how does it affect you? How does it affect me? How does it affect our dealings with people? with one another. Now, in the context, we're going to see that um, it's believer with believer. And if we have a problem having love for other believers, then we're going to really have a problem with people of the world, right? Doesn't that make sense? If if we can't love... uh, By the way, aren't we just such a lovable group as Christians? Aren't we just... You know... By the way, we should be, right? But the world is not always like that. So if we have a problem loving one another, then we're really going to have a problem loving the world, and we're really going to have a problem when we get to Jesus' teaching, love your enemies. If we cannot love our brethren, our fellow believers, uh, God's children then we'll have a problem. So I'm hoping all of us will be a little introspective as we look at this passage of Scripture and ask ourselves, how does this affect my life? And how can I be better at loving one another? If you were in men's prayer breakfast this last Saturday, we talked a little bit about that because it's one of the verses that we looked at in Proverbs. And we talked about a brother who usually is in attendance who wasn't there because uh, he's been diagnosed with cancer. He's been taking cancer treatments, but he got, um, he got word that the cancer has spread and there's cancer in many different areas of him right now. I talked to him this afternoon and he's got to take a mega dose of painkillers about every two or three hours. And I said to the gentleman, if we practice love, then uh, we ought to to call him. We ought to text him. We ought to let him know we love him. We're praying for him. He called me today and said, Pastor, I've been bombarded by men at the uh, prayer breakfast on Saturday. And what a blessing it's been and what a comfort to my heart to have all these men say they're praying for me and they love me and they care about me. And I think, isn't that just a Christian thing to do? Amen? I think all of us would say, yes, that's the Christian thing to do. 
but sometimes we get so busy in the things of this world, we don't always find the time to do the Christian thing. And yet, uh, the Bible says we are of this, uh, in this world, but not of this world. We actually are of another world. So we ought to be just as busy, if not more busy, with the things of the other world. And that's our world to come with God than this world, right? So we have time for a lot of things. We ought to have time for God to move our hearts to express love one toward another. So in these verses, there's a little bit of an outline. And let me suggest it says three things in this verse. First of all, that all true love has its origin in God. Love is of God. And so that's clearly stated. The second thing is real love shows that we have his spirit and that we belong to him. So the very fact that we have that love that God has placed in our heart shows that we are indeed of God and we have his spirit living in us. In verse 7 again, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God. So we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us because we love. And not just, you know, that we have feelings toward each other. The word in chapter 4, every time, every single time the word love is used is the word agape. And so we know that that's the love that God has. That's that sacrificial kind of love. That's that motivating kind of love that uh, as humans we really don't have without God's help, without God's interaction in our life. And the last thing is, it assimilates us to God or makes us more like Him. And it says, knoweth God. And so the fact that we love one another is, is a instrument of the Holy Spirit of God to conform us into the image of our Savior and to know real love, which is a God. It comes from God. It is placed in us because God lives within us. And two important signs of love and our salvation as it relates to this same verse. What are two important signs of love and salvation? The first one is the love that God has put in us shows divine sonship. Shows that we are indeed God's child. And everyone that loveth is begotten of God. Uh, and that's what it's saying. Everyone that loveth is born of God. And so we know that because we have that love that doesn't find itself in our, in the roots of a human being, but comes from God and Him alone, that is a sign of divine sonship. I was reading one commentator and here's what he said. Almost all Christian people are sorely tried with dark and crushing doubts at one time or other in their history. In such moments of spiritual experience, one of the most effective ways of removing the wretched doubt is to ask ourselves this question. Do we love God and our brethren? So when you you get to feel like, man, I wonder, what was I... Was I really saved? Because I'm going through this dark time in my faith. I'm, I'm going through this period of doubting. I'm going through this time where I'm not as obedient as I should. And so when that comes, 
we know the devil is the accuser of the brethren, right? And so he's going to go kick into high gear when you fall into those areas of life. And you're going to start wondering, am I really God's child? And what this commentator is saying, when you get to that place in your life, ask yourself this question. Do you love God? And do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? And if the honest answer is, I do. Yes, I do. I may not always show it like I should, but I do. He says, if the answer be yes, then we may console ourselves that we possess one of the most unmistakable signs of sonship. Is that because we're his child, he has placed his love in us. And I've shared with you before if you've ever had the experience of going on a mission trip, you're going to find that it doesn't matter if you can't speak their language and they're a brother and sister in Christ. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that you can't verbally communicate. You are on a level where your spirit bears witness with their spirit that you're both the children of God. It is a beautiful thing to be in the midst of a congregation and you don't, know, you don't have a clue what they're saying, but they're singing about Jesus and you know it. You don't, you know the tune. You don't know what exactly the words are that they're singing, but you know that they're praising Jesus. And there you are praising Jesus as well. And they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I've seen that all over the world in all the different places I've been. And, and I've, I've been to far more places than I deserve to have gone to. And God's been so gracious and kind to let me experience some of those things. But what a joy to be with other believers and know that we serve Jesus and we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And in all eternity, we'll be together and we'll understand each other. We'll all speak Chinese. No, I mean, we'll understand each other. Whatever language we have in heaven. There's more believers in China, I believe, than any other country. And then second to that would be Africa. A hundred million people in Africa profess faith in Christ. So uh, I'm not sure what dialect or whatever. It probably is not English. I'm just saying. I don't know. But we will have a wonderful time fellowshipping together. So the first thing I say is it shows divine sonship. And then secondly, a power to recognize God. And everyone that loveth knoweth God. The great intellect may recognize him as far as his works and his dealings with men. Uh, We know his word. Our intellect can help us to understand God. But if it only gets to our intellect... It doesn't develop a relationship. You never get married to someone you say, hmm, I understand you. <laughs> no, it's, it's I love you. You see, it has to get to that stage. It's not like, I, I think I understand them. I, I think I understand where you're coming from. We are never moved to God by what we know. 
It's by what we feel. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. If we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, that's salvation. But it's believing in the heart, not the head. And he goes on to say, uh, one commentator, he is speaking of that knowledge which is the grand result of apprehending God as the father of our spirit and the author of salvation. It is the knowledge that ripens into a firm faith and a calm trust in God as our unfailing friend who has reconciled the world to himself in Jesus Christ. And all of that comes about when we love God. And so to love God is to recognize him. And everyone that loveth knoweth God. Because as God develops the love in our lives, he starts developing a knowledge of the one who gave us that love, which is God. And God is love. Let's hasten to verse 8 now. The Bible says, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If what you know of God doesn't reach your heart, it really hasn't helped you. If what you know of God has not reached your heart, it really hasn't helped you. You ever seen a Christian that you think is theologically sound, but you've never seen a smile? I mean, as far as his theology, he could dot an I and cross a T and he knows just what to say. But he's never friendly. He never smiles. Doesn't show kindness. Never says, it's good to see you. How's your week been? Never inquires about you. Now, I'm fortunate to say in my ministry, I've never met many of those people, especially good members of Grandview Baptist Church. You're all excluded, okay? But let me say I have met people who were like that. And it makes me sort of scratch my head like, did they not get what I got? Remember, it was Christ that put that love in you for one another. Right? It wasn't because we all, you know, gave you a great Christmas gift. And so, of course, we love them. They gave us a great Christmas. No, it has nothing to do with that. It's nothing to do with what you've done for us, how you've served us, how kind you were. It's just the fact that God put something in us that was meant to spill out to everyone around us that are believers. Always kind, respectful to everyone. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 9 says, And this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Now, that sounds like God just rearranged words of John 3.16, isn't it? 
It's saying essentially the very same thing. Because in John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And here in 1 John 4, 9, And this was manifest the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Well, it's, it's, it shouldn't shock us that those verses are so alike. Uh, it was the Apostle John that God used to write the gospel according to John, in which John 3.16 is found. And it was the Holy Spirit of God using again the Apostle John to write 1 John Chapter 4, verse 9. So these verses are very similar. And it's just saying, uh, God manifested his love in that he provided his son as the very means of our salvation. In verse 10, again, for the second time in 1 John, we are going to see this interesting word that's only mentioned three times in Scripture, uh, but twice in 1 John. And uh, in chapter 2 and now in chapter 4, and it's that word propitiation. And the Bible says in verse 10, Herein is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Now that word propitiation means the payment, uh, and it also means the place of payment. Uh, in the Old Testament, it was the mercy seat. And that's why in the book of Hebrews, that word propitiation is translated mercy seat, not propitiation. But it's the same Greek word. So it's not only the place of, of payment, which was the Ark of the Covenant, and more particularly the mercy seat, which was that two-inch lid of solid gold that stood, that sat on top of that box overlaid with gold called the Ark of the Covenant. It's the mercy seat. And over it was the two cherubims who had the wings that touched each other. And right on top of the mercy seat is where the high priest came with the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And he would sprinkle that, a lamb without spot or blemish. And he would sprinkle that blood once a year, but twice on that same day once for himself, and secondly, for the sins of the people. And that's why in Hebrews, it's so significant that it says uh, that Jesus Christ entered once into the holy place. Why just once? Because he didn't have to enter for his sins. So he only entered for the sins of humanity. And he shed his blood for our redemption. And that is the propitiation. And I hope you still remember that a mental image that I shared with you several months ago. As I was studying about that, it was so interesting that one commentator said that when you brought that lamb to the priest to offer as a sin offering, and even on the Day of Atonement when that lamb was brought, uh, whose blood would be captured and sprinkled in the mercy seat, it was never the person bringing the lamb that was examined. It was only the lamb. And if you didn't hear that, I'm, uh, I'm glad you're here tonight because it's, it's just a significant thing. The high priest didn't say, well, you know, let me talk to your neighbors. You might need to bring ten lambs. I hear you're a rascal. I, I, I hear, you know, I'm not sure this lamb's going to be good enough for you. You probably need several of them. 
Or he didn't look at him and say, you know, I've heard only good things about you. You don't need a lamb, maybe a turtle dove or maybe this or that. It was never the person who brought the sacrifice that was examined. It was always the sacrifice. And as long as that lamb was without spot or blemish, it was enough for the best sinner or the worst sinner. It didn't matter. Because the sinner brought the lamb that was without spot and blemish. And the very fact that he brought it was a confession that he is not without spot and blemish. He's full of it. But he brought the lamb as his substitute. And that's exactly what Jesus is. And when you came to salvation in Christ, he did not come to examine you. He only had to examine his son. And he understood his son was the sinless lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world that taketh away the sin of the world. And so just remind the devil when he wants to come up and try to accuse you of being some poor subject of a Christian example. Just remind him that you're not going to heaven on your basis. You're going to heaven on his basis. It's what he did for you. It's not what you've done for him. God examined our sacrifice. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 teaches us some a little bit about that. And I want to read that. The Bible says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision made in the flesh, made by hands. Now, simply put, he's talking about Jews and he's talking about Gentiles. That's what he's talking about. That at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one. Now by both one, it means he made both Jews and Gentiles one in Christ. So he took two people groups. One was the people of God and the other was every other people called Gentiles, everyone else. The Jews, God's people, and the Gentiles, that's everyone else, not God's people. Alien from God, foreign uh, to the covenant of God. But Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice, hath made twain both one in Christ, is what he means. And so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. Let me make sure I'm in the right place. Having slain the enmity thereby. And this is the work of propitiation. So making peace. That he should reconcile both unto God. Both the Jew and the Gentile. Both unto God in one body. We are one in Christ. One body. We're not... Jewish believers and Gentile believers. We are just believers. We are one in Christ. 
And that was the work of propitiation. To take the sinful Jew, the sinful Gentile, and bring them together, the self-righteous and the non-righteous, and put us together in faith in Christ. Because of our faith in Christ, we are one in the Lord. And came and preached peace unto you who are far off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now, keep in mind this passage of scripture that I read, it starts off with saying, ye were foreign from God, you were alien from God, you were away from the covenant and having no hope. But because of propitiation, because of the redemption of Christ, the Bible says, now we are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Now, saints was figuratively of the Jews. We are of one body. Now, we are in God's family, just like they always said, we're in God's family. Well, yeah, but by faith, you're in God's family as a Jew, not because you were born one. And of the saints and of the household of God. So now, because of propitiation, we are in God's family. Praise God. What Christ did for us on Calvary. In verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Verse 12, No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, by perfected, it means um, his love has has accomplished its purpose. It doesn't mean we have the perfect love of God. But the fact that we have loved one for another, the love of Christ has accomplished his purpose in our life to give us that love one for another. We know that because of his spirit, we are Christians. We know because we saw and do testify And we know because we confessed and God came to dwell in us. And we see that in verse 13, uh, 14, and 15. In verses 13, 14, and 15, it is talking about how do we know that God's Spirit lives in us. So I've said the context of this is God's love in verses 7 through verse 21. But when we come to verse 13, 14, and 15... It uh, is almost like a parenthesis, and now it's going to talk about how do we know? How do we know we're believers? Well, we know we're believers because of His Spirit. We know we are believers because we're trusting those, the apostles, who actually saw and do testify. They were eyewitnesses, and they testified unto us what they saw, and what they heard. And then also because we confessed, and when we confessed Christ, this unusual thing happened. God came to dwell in us. He came to live in us. We confessed, 
I mean, I trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior as a nine-year-old boy. I asked him to save me. I told him I believed in him. Uh, what I didn't realize at that time was when I went home, God went with me. And that's why that songwriter wrote, and he walks with me, and he talks with me. Because he came, he came to live in me. And that's a wonderful realization to know that God lives in us. So let's, let's find how it says that in verse 13, 14, 15. Verse 13, hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. He placed his spirit in us. And we've already read that the spirit of God beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. So God's spirit lets us know we're his children. How did you know you were the children of your parents? I mean, your father would say, come here, son. Sweetie, come here. Daughter, come here. I mean, they spoke to you as though you were a part of the family. That's how we know we're in God's family. He speaks to us like we're in his family. And we are. Verse 14, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So here, John again is saying about we've seen and we testify. Notice uh, as we looked at this passage of Scripture, I reminded you in in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. We heard him, we saw him, we touched him. And I reminded you back then that in Luke chapter 24 and verse 39, Jesus says to his disciples after the resurrection, handle me, handle me. For spirit hath not flesh and bone as you see me have. Handle me, come, come here, Thomas, come here. Other disciples, come here, handle me. Before you go out and die a martyr's death for the cause of Christ, come here and know that you believe. Jesus said, blessed are they, those of you, you see and you believe. But blessed are those who have not seen, but they believe. Why do we believe? Because we believe the people who handled him were used of God to write down in this record called the Word of God that they saw him, they heard him, their hands have handled him of the Word of life. And by faith in their testimony, we confess Christ. And when we confess Christ, we no longer have to believe just their testimony because Christ came to live inside of us when we confessed him. The Bible says in verse 15, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. So that relationship took place when we confessed Christ as our personal Savior. Yesterday we had one of our Korean students' friend come stay with us for just a few days. And uh, he's only been here uh, a few months, I believe. Uh, And so uh, 
I'd ask him about the Lord the first time I met him, and he was he was not a believer, but he was just trying to understand. And so I asked him last night, I said, uh, have you come to understand Christ? He said, yes, I do. I said, are, are you at that place where you want Christ? He said, yes, I want Christ. You want Christ as your Savior? He said, yes, I do. I said, um, do you know how to accept Christ? He said, I want to. I'm, I'm not sure how to yet, but I want to. I said, well, I was in that same case when I was nine. I wanted to, but I didn't know how to. I was just like that. And a lot of people are like that when they first come to Christ. They get to that point, they say, I want Christ. But, but what do I do? They, you know, they don't, under, they don't understand how easy it is to receive Christ. He prayed. <coughs> I helped him and he prayed and he trusted Christ as his Savior. Let me just tell you, he has been so happy. He's been floating around. I Christian. <laughs> I, I'm saved. And I didn't give him the terminology. He, he's heard enough. He knows that terminology, but now he knows it's his. See, the difference is Christ came in you. I was talking to one of our boys. He said, you know, I trust that Christ is my Savior. And I asked him tonight, and he reminded us that the furniture in the living room was all different then. He said, so I was over here, and, and that's where I sat, and you sat there, and you talked to me, and I prayed and trusted Christ as my Savior. And he said, last night, he said, Pastor, you know, I, I gave my life to Christ, and I knew I was saved. But then I was thinking, uh, am I sure I'm saved? And he said, and then I thought, if I'm God's child, I should read his word. So I started reading his word. And then if I'm God's child, I should pray. So I started praying. He said, now I really know I'm God's child. He said, because when I start reading my Bible and I start praying, Jesus talks to me. <laughs> he said, I know I'm saved because he, he talks to me. And I talk to him. Now, folks, those are things that you and I take for granted. We've been saved for a while, but that's one of the sure proofs, the confession of Christ. You confess Christ, he comes to live in you. And that's what Paul's, uh, John's saying here in verse 15. Verse 16, and we have known and believed the love of, that God hath for us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Verse 17, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. And it's interesting, I want us to understand the perfect result of our love is we're looking forward to standing before Christ. We're not afraid of it. You talk to Christians, I'm looking forward to that day. Why? Because perfect love casts out judgment. We're not afraid of standing before God. We know we're not perfect Christians, but we got a perfect Savior. And so there's no fear. Because we love Him and He loves us. And we have no fear of death and no fear of judgment. 
because we know the judgment seat of Christ is not to judge our sins, it's to reward us for what we've done for Christ on this earth. It's not a judgment for wrong deeds we did as a Christian. No. It's for whatever good we've done as a Christian for the cause of Christ. And then the Bible says, because as he is, so are we in this world. You see, we are his ambassadors. We are his representatives to a world that's lost. And we're his representatives to a world that's also saved. Now, I mentioned that as we taught this, we want to be a little bit of introspective. So let me ask you this. Can others see Christ in us? Can others see Christ in us? See Christ in us. You know that even Superman couldn't see kryptonite if it was in a lead box, right? And, and do you know, now you have to be a little old to realize that, but do you know that you might have Christ in you, but your flesh is so much of a lead box that you're not letting Christ shine very much? Now, I just say that in general and let the Holy Spirit let it go where it goes. But ask ourselves the question, do they see Christ in us? Are we kind? Are are we loving? Are are we encouraging? Are we complimentary? Uh, do Do we build up? Do we encourage and esteem and edify? And all those things we're asked to do. Do we love one another? We pray for one another. All of those things do we do? Well, of course, the obvious answer is we should. Now, I'm not saying if you don't do this and this and this, you're not. I'm just saying probably all of us could do a little more. Be a little more. And may I say is this. It's not that we be more, it's just that we let Christ shine out more. We just, we just let Christ show himself and shine out his love through us, through these weak vessels we have, because we're in his ambassadors. Now we come to verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. There's no fear of judgment. In verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. Why do we love Christ? Because he loved us. He has a love that was, that took the initiative. That's it. Um, you see, Christ loved us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love took the initiative. We didn't, we didn't just say, oh, he's so wonderful, I think I'll love him. No, we didn't care at all about that. But he loved us when we were wretched and undone and alienated from God and sinners to the nth degree and bound for hell and deserved every moment we would spend in eternity. And yet with all of that, he loved us 
because of who he is, not because of who we are. And we've responded to that grace. Now let me share with you in verses 20 and 21, God's Christ's plan for our love to be manifested. Christ's plan for our love to be manifested. These two verses, verse 20, if a man say, I love God and hate his brother, he is a liar. For he that hate, loveth not his brother whom he have seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And so the simple truth is there, if we can't love each other whom we can see, the Bible's saying we're going to have a hard time convincing God that we love him who we cannot see. Now that, that's a statement of, of just some logic, but it's a spiritual truth. In verse 21, and this commandment have we of him that he who loveth God love his brother also. Now, let me just suggest this. How do you get to love each other more? How can you and I as believers love each other more? Well, our, our intellect would say that, well, we, we um, you know, we, we think about it and maybe we write it on a five, three by five card. And before we get out of the car to get it to church, we read it. It says, show love toward each other. OK, OK, let me try this. Now, obviously, it would be like make a mental note and just think, oh, I don't do that. Well, but, but see, that's, that's our intellectual way to love one another more. How do we love each other more? There's one inevitable way, and that's to love Jesus more. Because who is God? God is love. And the more we love God... And the more we love Christ our Savior, may I suggest the Word of God's teaching, the more we will automatically love one another. So that leads me to say this last thing before we close. If you have a problem loving another Christian, your problem is not them. Your problem's you and God. It's you and God. And whenever I've faced a situation in my life where I thought it'd be very, very difficult not just to love someone, but actually to be agreeable. The problem wasn't the relationship between me and them. The problem was my relationship between me and God. The Bible says, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. Who as he hung on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, the problem's never other Christians. Now, I know if we go with that argument, everybody will nod their head. Yeah, I know them too. Uh, yeah, I, I've met those kind of Christians. But the problem's not those kind of Christians. The problem's us. And so this passage is God is love and he's teaching us to let him love others through us because his love dwells in us. And let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.
I hope that we'll just think about what was said tonight. I certainly didn't direct that toward anybody. I think I'm preaching to the choir. I think the best Christians in our whole church assemble on a Wednesday night, a cold Wednesday night at that. But I do think, I do think it's applicable to my life and your life and all of our lives. I have not arrived when it comes to having that kind of love, but it is a kind of love that I aspire, I hope, I pray, I, I would hope Jesus would show his love through me. And I think that's the heart desire of every Christian here. We want the love of Christ to flow through us and be seen through us and in us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love. And Lord, especially as we think at this time of year, how so many years ago you sent your son to Bethlehem as a babe in a manger. And Lord, we're thankful for that. We praise your holy name for that. Lord Jesus, we're all lost and undone without your son. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you will Help us to be those ambassadors and that representative of you that you tell us to be. And Lord Jesus, help us to love you more so that your love could be seen more through our life for others. And if you so love the world, help us to do so also. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. We'll just take a minute, heads are bowed, and would you just reflect and let God speak to your heart and do something in your life as well? God bless you. Thank you so much for coming. And hopefully we'll see you Saturday at, uh, is it five? At five. And it's going to be a little less than an hour. So it won't be long. Be a great time Christmas Eve. God bless you and Merry Christmas to you.